Hey guys, so welcome back to the Elevate HD podcast. This is episode two, and we are joined by none other than Joe Jeffrey. I'm sure he needs no introduction, and I'm sure anyone who knows me will know who he is. But just in case, he is an online physique coach, and he coaches very high-level athletes and competitors. He's a mentor, he's an educator, he's also one of the founders of the Physique Collective, which you all know I joined just a couple of months ago as their exercise mechanic. Um, he's also my coach, and he is somewhat of a new, newly discovered dog trainer and has a new company that's just been established through that, so that's really interesting. So he has a whole other aspect of his life that's nothing to do with competing, which is kind of cool as well. Um, and he has just established a new company called Brutal Bloodline, which uh, are you selling dogs there? Is, how, how does well, that work? <laughs> what it is, I'll, I'll be brief here because I can, I can be a bit verbose when it comes to dogs. Um, <laughs> me and my wife, Jasmine, for anybody that doesn't follow me, we've been into dog training, dog sport training, working dogs and stuff for quite a while. And um, it's like what we do outside of bodybuilding. Um, and I've been involved in IGP or IPO, the dog sport, also more so than jazz with my own sports dog. Um, and basically just became good friends with somebody called Ross Heron, who people might have seen Blackjack Canine UK, who is the best in the country at the sport and personal protection training and whatnot in dogs. And I ended up just making a kind of business investment in Ross and his knowledge. And we've began importing breeding and training personal protection dogs i don't do any of the training that's all ross's job <laughs> but Jasmine's after all the dogs so we essentially have working line german shepherds that are just for work or just for sport you wouldn't have one of these as a pet it'd be impossible to live with um and then we have the like home guardian dogs personal protection dogs that are carny corsos that are imported or bred from bloodlines from romania so that's it in a nutshell Cool. Very interesting. Yeah, it's a completely new world to me. When I came to your house a few months ago and I saw everything was going on, my mind was like, wow, this is a whole new world I didn't even know existed. Oh, you should see it now. We've got seven in oh the minute. Yeah. <laughs> I'll prepare myself mentally next time I come to visit, I think. <laughs> Some of them are quite, like Zeus, people are quite scared of Zeus. He's our, our stud male canny corso. Mm-hmm. By far the biggest guy I've ever seen in real life. Yeah. Um, quite frightening looking but he's hilarious he's like the biggest softy he he reminds me of like a giant staffy like he's just like wants cuddles and stuff but yeah he's he's brilliant very nice yeah so there's a whole other aspect of your life there but yeah so today our main topic that I kind of wanted to cover is kind of methods of training progression for hypertrophy um because before I came to Joe I'd very much only really experienced the the top set, back off set approach, always training to failure with no sort of periodization or auto-regulation or anything like that. So it was all very, every week, top set, back off set, train to failure. And there was no, nothing, nothing apart from that. So when I came to Joe and I had this completely novel approach to training progression, it was very, it was very, very different. It took me a while to adapt. Um, but it's a very, very interesting concept. And I just wanted to kind of start with how you discovered this new method of training progression and what made you decide to implement it with your clients. Yeah, this is a question I get a lot where like you've used the buzz phrase there was like new method. It was like, I don't think there was ever a point that I had a new method of training. Like as an individual, I've always had quite a proclivity for learning 
and right back to when I got into bodybuilding about 12 years ago, yeah, my initial looking was experiencing people like Dr. Scott Stevenson and, and, and who's very evidence-based and, and he really inspired me to learn to learn myself because I didn't have any formal education. I still don't have any formal education. So I went down the path of being evidence-based to the best of my ability, which of course involves reading everything that happens in trials or any uh, systematic review outcomes, meta-analyses and things like this. Not discounted anecdote. I don't want anybody listening to think that. But so as I've considered myself evidence-based over the years, I've followed the evidence and put those practices into clients and slowly that's morphed into the thing that we see today with not only the way that I train clients but also my experience tends to be anybody that follows the evidence and also works with higher level individuals ends up with this kind of programming structure for example I had a question on Physique Collective yesterday it was like what have you learned like speaking with Mike and Jared, you know, in the last year I've become good friends with Mike and Jared and they're known as kind of the figureheads of this style of training. Uh, no, sorry. The question was what's changed. Was it nothing, nothing's actually changed. And I was quite happy to see that we did the same things. I'd have been more worried if we were reading the same literature and coming out with something yeah. different. It would mean that was wrong. So luckily nothing, but um, that's not to say things won't change either. So that's an important point to note, a lack of emotional attachment to any kind of, training programming, which I think is a disease that especially the UK suffer with, um, emotional attachment to things that drive personal enjoyment, which I think is important, but less important when you're talking about competitors that want to progress at all costs. Um, and being open-minded to the research and being open-minded to being wrong. And that's something that I was, uh, am, and, and eventually have come to this kind of programming as it stands now. but. Of course, it's always open to change in light of new evidence. Yeah, and I think I'm lucky because I've come from a scientific background. We've always been taught to think like that, to be open-minded, to be open to change and to never be like dogmatic in your views or opinions because that's a bad scientist if you just have one way, you're setting your ways and you don't let any new data or current research kind of change your views. Um, where there are some people who, as you said, they form this kind of, cult-like mentality towards specific training methods and then it's almost they almost get offended if anyone has a different view or opinion or approach and they see it as that they they go on the defensive about theirs even though you know we all have different ways of doing things and different things work for different people as well yeah there's um i've noticed over the years of like taking clients on had this situation recently where people have what's analogous to like a, a religious um, connection with their training. And there was a study that I read not long ago that I posted on Physique Collective on just individuals with firmly held beliefs and what happens with the brain when presented with evidence of the contrary. And it's a defensive mechanistic response. And, you know, we see that in, a, in action, which I think is, you know, like I said, it's like a disease, it's like a curse. It's, it's inhibiting your ability to learn and, and progress and, and better your outcomes. Um, it's a dangerous road and something I would actively encourage anybody to work on. And that, and that doesn't mean I actively encourage anybody to train or program the way I do. Not at all. I actively encourage people to think and question and read research and find what makes sense to them and input those adjustments. Yeah. I think it, it can be difficult as well. Like if, 
if you don't have a coach that's so knowledgeable or you don't have that background in research like when I go to my gym everyone is going like full out to failure past failure like everyone's screaming at each other and forcing reps and there's that whole atmosphere that you're not really a part of like it is quite difficult to kind of stand your ground and say no I know that the approach that I'm doing works for me and just because I'm not doing these really dramatic sets that are leaving me just on the ground fried that doesn't mean I'm doing something wrong or that I'm not doing something that's going to contribute to my progression so that's kind of like the dynamic there yeah environment is a huge thing and again especially in the UK you go to any gym and this is what people are doing because it's cool you know people spend a lot more time on Instagram than they do on PubMed mm -hmm. and when you're scrolling Instagram you'll see um ex-athlete doing a set to a failure with this really neurally driving music and it's like oh I'm like you get dopamine hit from that you know this is really cool I want to be a part of this it looks like you know uh, same thing as watching like an action movie or watching a fight on UFC or something like we enjoy that stuff, you know, because of the dopamine hit that the brain gives you in line with things that are aggressive or um, fearful. You know, the reason why people watch horror movies, um, this neurobiology is really interesting. You should get um, Will Bassnick to come and talk a bit on this. Also. Yeah, I'd love to because I was listening to his podcast that he did with you guys last night. Yeah, well, we've been having some long-form chats about serotonin and dopamine and stuff over the last few days that he um, he really knows his shit on this yeah. stuff. Um, but anyway, sorry, I've, I've gone off course there. That's okay. Yeah, so um, I think when you're exposed to that stuff as the lay person, anybody trained, you think, right, this is the way it is done. And alongside not spending time on PubMed, um, it doesn't have to be PubMed, you know, any, any journal, um, it's really difficult to learn. You know, one of the hardest things I've ever done was learning to read and interpret data. It took me years um, of working with people, like I said, Dr. Scott or, or Lyle McDonald or Professor Scott Howells and stuff. Some of these people that I've had as what I'd call mentors over the years. Just the, the process of learning to learn was so hard. And I think that's something university certainly gives you. I, did, I didn't, I was going to say, I didn't get the opportunity. I, I had the opportunity to go to uni. I just chose not to because of money. Um, so uh, if you are one of those individuals, uh, I understand, but I would encourage you to at least try. Yeah, I think, but even in, in my university days, it gets very appealing to just read the abstract of papers because we were reading so many. It's easy to just, you know, I'll, I'll just read the abstract. It'll give me an overview, but you have to realize that a lot of these people that do this research have other motives they have sponsors they have all this kind of stuff that's going to affect how they interpret the results so you need to go through the paper yourself and kind of come to your own conclusion because sometimes their perception of their result is skewed by influences externally like sponsors and and people who have paid the money and, and the result they want because they want like to get published they want a positive result because it's very hard to get a negative result published in a paper or in a journal there's all these things and then also learning how to spot limiting factors like what was the population what was the sample size you know how did they carry out the research you know did it make sense all these kind of things that if you're not trained or if you haven't spent that time like you have learning how to read it it's very difficult to decipher what's going on yeah well this happened fairly recently didn't it i think the research was called like bow bow bower or something there was a lot of research redacted that was very like low volume positive and 
I mean, it had been referenced by many, many people over the years in terms of like hypertrophy outcomes of lower training volumes being more um, positive, you could say, like leaning towards being the, the greater outcome. And uh, it was redacted due to so many errors in statistical analysis and blocking of the results and things like this. It, it seemed actually like the only good evidence that the low volume crowd had was taken away from them actually oh at that point. You know, which is a good point, actually, of reading the breadth of the research, you know, not finding anyone like I guarantee you could find one paper somewhere that says what you're trying to say. Yeah. And you go, oh, there we go. There's the evidence. Like you need to read the whole span and learn to read statistical analysis as well. Like anybody that's um, read the base in research on testosterone, for example, you know, you can read the abstract and it will say, 600 milligrams of testosterone adding X amount of lean body mass to these subjects. But then when you look at the plot, the variability is almost so ridiculous that you wouldn't be able to draw a statistical average. Mm. So, you know, un understanding things like that is important when reading research. Yeah. You know? And just not falling victim to confirmation bias, like you said, like looking for one paper, like cherry picking data and say, oh, that suits me, Grant. I believe it now, that's fine. And not kind of broadening your view of all of the research and interpreting it as a whole, um, which is definitely an issue. So when it comes to kind of programming for this kind of novel way, not well, novel for me and for a lot of people, but this kind of different approach to training progression, when you're setting a client up, like how do you decide initially how many kind of sets or what kind of reps and reserve you're going to give them? And then from there, how do you kind of auto-regulate that to see mm -hmm. you know, what's working for them, what needs a bit more, what needs a bit less, that kind of thing. Okay, so as a broad view, you've got these inputs to hypertrophy that we have control over, that we understand fairly well. So like training volume, like you mentioned sets, like I personally measure training volume with the number of sets within a certain proximity to failure. That's my sort of easy marker, like you, you could just call them hard sets, you know, within maybe four reps in reserve or under. Um, some people track volume like total tonnage. I think there's too many problems with that um, tracking over the long term. So with my definition of volume, we know the research is pretty clear that there's a logarithmic relationship between volume and hypertrophy. So essentially what we're saying there, there's a dose response curve that's in the shape of an inverted U. So doing more volume leads to more hypertrophy until you get to this point and then doing more starts to lead to maladaptation where essentially the demand is greater than the adaptation and you will move into overreaching and then eventually overtraining. So it's not just about doing more volume. You want to be, you know, somewhere on that positive curve. Um, and there is a price to pay as you trend up closer towards the top in terms of fatigue. Um, similarly with intensity, um, we know that the closer proximity to failure you get, the more high threshold motor units will be recruited, which is absolutely associated with greater hypertrophy. Like if you took a single set to failure versus a single set with four reps in reserve, the set to failure will lead to more hypertrophy, absolutely. Um, however, again, we have to be aware of this dose-dependent response curve that's an inverted U, where if you're taking your sets to failure, the amount of volume that you can perform, which we've already identified, has the dose response uh, relationship positively with hypertrophy will come down. So there's a careful balance between the two. And I think the smartest thing to do is to stay somewhere on the side of what we know is 
minimally effective. So what's been documented in research to drive fairly robust hypertrophy, but it's clearly not towards the upper echelons of, of, of this marker. So um, you could say, so basically what I'm saying there is there's a stimulus threshold. Uh, there's an amount of work that you will have to do to get a response. The, the complicated part of this is that's not only biologically into individual, which essentially means that place is different for everybody. It's also different between muscle bellies uh, per genetic structure. You know, so these are all things, unfortunately, that you will have to learn over time. Uh, and one of the problems with the, the higher intensity, lower volume crowd is there's very little auto-regulation or specialization there. It's like push-ball legs. Okay, we've automatically got two-thirds of the volume going through the upper body there. Um, what if your tolerable or recoverable volumes for the upper body are so much less than the lower body or, you know, vice versa, you might be okay. That there has to be a discovery period for you as a genetically unique individual as you go. And there's some biomarkers that I like to use with fairly high accuracy to, to measure this. So when I say setting up an initial point, I would say, you know, the low end of effective volume is going to be about eight hard sets per body part per week, eight to 12, depending on the individual you may set higher with three to four reps in reserve. So if you want to begin training this way, it's worth putting in the work in that discovery period rather than going all in. Um, and you can make this mesocycle for anybody that doesn't know mesocycle just means training block, you know, block of training. And, and I tend to refer to a training block as an accumulation phase because we are trying to get closer to the top line of what's tolerable. You could just start really on the low end. You could say, right, for everything, I'm going to do eight sets per body part per week, spread over a two to three time per week frequency because, you know, another thing that's fairly well documented is that kind of frequency is associated with greater performance outcomes over the course of the week. Um, I know when volume is matched, it's about the same, but you, you won't be matching volume as volume gets higher. You know, it, it'd be impossible to keep that kind of performance up. So, you know, maybe we could structure this into just like four days a week, upper, lower, upper, lower. You can do four sets per muscle belly or group per session with like four reps in reserve. And then just assess what happens, you know, like assess your metabolite accumulation. You know, how was your pump in the session? If it was, If you didn't really get that pump, then you probably could have done some more. If you've got an incredible pump, then, you know, it's, it's likely that you've got a pretty robust hypertrophy response there. If you got really pumped and then it dropped off and, you know, you're probably going too far. Soreness is one I like to use as a metric of muscle damage, um, which we know has all kinds of like, uh, does it correlate with hypertrophy or not? I don't think that's the point. Um, the, the point is to check the kind of response to, to, to the training input. Um, if you get a little bit of soreness, um, but you're recovered on time, you could probably do a bit more. If you didn't get any soreness, you could definitely do maybe quite a bit more. Um, and, and if you've got overlapping soreness, then you're likely at the top end of what your adaptive volumes are for that body part. And I would auto-regulate it in that way. You know, and it's going to differ for every body part. You may find that your chest is absolutely whacked um, with the eight sets of body part per week, but quads, it was easy work. Then maybe next week you want to do 12 sets of quads you know add two sets per workout there so now you're doing six and six instead of four and four and chest you can leave the same and over time running through these mesocycles you will discover 
where your low-end recoverable volumes and your high-end adaptive and recoverable volumes are, and you can construct a piece of training that is perfect for you as a genetically unique individual. And that's the, the key. Most of my clients want to progress maximally. How can you do that without testing these inter-individual responses? Just kind of throw in a training program at them. You know, you can't. And this is where coaching becomes quite time laborious. You know, I've got a lot less clients. I only coach 60 people. Um, but, you know, if I'm going for a spreadsheet with all this historical data on tolerable volumes and stuff, I mean, most check-ins take me, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes to do. A lot of coaches will just ping the voice note and it'll be about 30 seconds. Um, but if you want to progress maximally, it's worth that. And it's really not that complicated when you action it. Yeah. I think as well, this is kind of an aside, but in terms of client retention and client buy-in, to see the coach putting in so much effort into personalizing and individualizing the plan is very appealing. Like when I see how much work you put into my plan and how we tweak it every week, we auto-regulate based on my biofeedback, that makes me want to keep going. I want to progress and it makes me trust you a lot more than if someone just had the same plan. We can wake out week out with no no tweaks or adjustments to suit me, you know? Yeah, the, the weird coaching thing for me, like my brain wouldn't be able to deal with having a client saying like, here's your training plan. This is what you're going to do for the next six weeks. Mm. And then it's like, I will just kind of deload when, when you feel like you need a deload. It's like, you're leaving things up to like chance. Mm. And there's no room for that in competitive, you know, imagine getting on stage and like you get second and then you're like, oh man, is there anything else I could have done? Well, yeah, yeah, probably quite a lot. You're just like seeing if you can add a rep here and there. It's like, no, have a progression scheme. Yeah. Have a set of simulations. Like work towards functional overreaching. Monitor all of these things. It's, it's not difficult to think, am I sore today? How's my pump in this session? You know, it's easy biofeedback, but invaluable. So training phases for me are never static, you know, with any client. It's not like, here's your block for the next um, six weeks. It's like, here's what we're doing this week. Next week's check-in, we assess and decide what's going to happen for the next week. Yeah. I just find that, like, when my variables of progression were just reps and load, you do leave a lot to chance because especially towards, like, the tail end of my dieting phase last year, like, nothing was moving. I couldn't increase reps. I couldn't increase weight. So every week I was going in and just this like stalling on everything it was all the same whereas if I had that ability to add an extra set or to increase my intensity or to find some other way to progress maybe I wouldn't have stalled so much because for someone that's so like people that are quite advanced in their training might not be adding load every single week you know it might not be realistic for a lot of movements because we've been training for so long we've lost you know the newbie games have been and gone and kind of adaptations are quite slow at this point um especially for like natural people um so you kind of need those other variables to utilize when you can't progress in in the traditional way that people have been doing i think you make a great point with the limitations of just rep and load progression ultimately my question would be why especially mm -hmm. when you consider how injurious that is at a high level if you look at some of my clients joe ballinger nath heckles you know, these guys are ridiculously strong. Joe especially has a history of just tearing everything, mm. you know, coming from somebody that trained bulls out to failure constantly. In fact, I'll use Joe as an example because he got loads of comments on a 
physique shop recently, which was like, have you improved your legs so much? When funnily enough, leg volume wasn't really crazy for Joe in this off season that we've just had. It was mostly a top line specialization block. We can talk specialization if you want at some point, but that's a bit advanced stuff. Maybe we'll do a follow-up podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and it was literally just stopping him being injured, you know? And if you sort of, if you look at his progression over the year on, on maybe a chart, so when you've got load and rep progression with a single training block, you are just seeing this like linear positive trend, right? So every week you come in, you should add rep and load. It should do this. And then maybe you deload and then you sign back up here and aiming to go again. Fine. You know, that that is progressive tension, mechanical tension is escalating and it works. However, a, a more nuanced and dare I say intelligent way to structure this would be to have the opportunity to include not only rep and load progression, but also set progression and also effort. I, I don't like using the word intensity too much because research buffs will listen and intensity is used to um, make a road. <laughs> I'll use effort, relative effort maybe. So proximity to failure is far less injurious. And what it will look like is you like kind of going up through your mesocycles like this, and then you'll deload. And then you're actually starting with maybe less load, uh, less reps, less sets. So you're starting lower, but you're not starting as low as the previous block. You know, you're starting a bit further up. So it kind of looks like this jagged waveform almost as you progress through a macro cycle. However, I guarantee you zoom out and the end point is going to be much higher yeah. than the first model we described. But also as an aside, I would say, like how many times have we seen on Instagram people doing like this big set on the leg press or something and they got two extra reps and the last like caption is I'll tidy this up next week. Like their technique nearly always will break down just to reek out those extra couple of reps. So when you're not using purely reps and load to progress, you don't have this emotional attachment as much to, okay, I have to increase the load. I have to increase the reps. If you have another set, your technique can be just as spot on. You don't need to allow for and break down just to, progress in some way um because i see that all the time that the last couple of reps are definitely questionable when you're progressing yeah and it's, it's okay to match performance as well you know these these hypertrophy adaptations are, are really non-acute in nature you know if you if you don't progress for two weeks and and then take an extra rep you know for most advanced trainees you're still probably close to maximizing like protein accretion adaptations from training you know these adaptations take a long time um and as you said there's a dangerous road to get into even to the point with a lot of clients i don't have a a rep and load progression model i literally just use an internal feedback mechanism with reps in reserve so maybe we'll say i like, just perform three sets on this seated hand curl to three reps in reserve and then maybe next week we're going to do four uh, two reps in reserve just by virtue of reducing the reps in reserve, we take progression anyway um, without having a specific, right, I need to get this extra rep, you know? And like you said, even if they match the first three sets and add another set, you know, that's, nobody can tell me that that isn't associated with greater hypertrophy because uh, every single research paper ever done on the subject, you know, shows that to a point, obviously. Um, so yeah, you, you're absolutely right. And, and something that we haven't even touched on is the exercise selection part of this and the proprioception and the execution is extremely, extremely important as a factor. 
So your overall, the, the, the greater exercise selection that you have, the greater, I don't mean that as in more, the, the better exercise selection that you have conducive to hypertrophy outcomes, you know, Holly knows more about this than me, but in terms of things like stability or offering congruent profiles, things like this, all of this leads back into fatigue for me and how the hypertrophy adaptation really takes place within the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system specifically. All of these things are fatigue drivers, you know, lack of stability on a movement, taking things to brutal all out failure. A lot of working with advanced clients involves monitoring and tracking fatigue carefully, accumulating it carefully and then dissipating it heavily. Um, and if you can control that, you, you'll be on to a winner. And that even goes as nuanced as, you know, if I see a client getting ridiculously hyped up for a set, I mentioned Joe again, because I told him off where it was like using um, ammonia salts and yeah. uh, you know, like, <gasps> I'm like, bro, there's no need, you know, there's a time and a place for things like that. And, you know, maybe save that for the final week of the meso, but, you know, we're only training to like two reps in reserve here. I want you to do it like you do anything and then immediately switch into just relaxed, you know, because hypertrophy adaptations do not take place when you're in a hugely sympathetically driven state, you know? And I always think as well as that, I feel hypertrophy needs to be so focused where I think things like hyping yourself up for a set or doing exercises with a lot of instability or really inefficient you know, um, paths and stuff like that. It's all like leaky energy. So all this energy you've generated that you want to literally direct into force generation through the target muscle and contracting that, you're kind of letting it leak out into all these other areas. So you're kind of being quite inefficient in terms of where you want to direct your stimulus and your focus. Um, that's kind of the way I think about it usually. Absolutely. Even like post-workout, I've had conversations with clients who are like, takes me ages to like wind down and you know i can't eat my meal and stuff like i want clients leaving the gym like okay cool i'm good now i can sit down relax eat my meal i feel good after training we can immediately get into that you know to use a bit of a bro term growth state mm -hmm. you know maximum parasympathetic tone expression that's when we know very clearly that hypertrophy occurs there which is another big argument against training to these brutal all-out failure points year round and then having to progress on top of that. So you have to do even more, like give yourself even more neural drive the next week. And, you know, what's also what is these individuals seem to never deload. And for me, that just screams chronic under-training, if anything, or just lying to themselves about being functionally overreached. But if they're truly going in and doing another rep or putting a little bit of load on the bar and keeping execution solid, how do you not ever deload? Um, you're probably chronically under training. Like it is my goal to get a client to need to deload, you know, every three to six weeks, you know, ideally we want to take advantage of some functional overreaching and get some super compensatory hypertrophy at that point. Um, never deloading is not, I mean, that's a sign that your training program is like set up pretty poorly. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember you saying that to me years ago when I was with you and you were like, I was like, yeah, I never deload. And you were like, do you not? <laughs> That's not a good thing. <laughs> but yeah, I think, it's, yeah, it's a combination of probably undertraining, probably a bit of pride, probably like a, a mixture of all these things where, you know, only only the weak will deload and I don't need to deload because I'm hardcore and all these like, kind of like identity associations they have with training probably holds them back from that as well. Yeah, that stuff's all cool, you know, like... <laughs> 
being the bodybuilder type and doing this kind of training and, you know, being hardcore or whatever, you know, that's cool. But what's really cool is actually progressing and winning your shows and not like ruining your life experience in the, in the process. Yeah. You know, I, I think like, especially like I feel like I had a lot to prove last year with my competitive clients with, I don't know how, because I've been programming like this for a while, but I think now that I've got more high profile clients, I've got a lot of, that's not how it's done kind of thing. And then, you know, I, I, we didn't get a single poor result. In fact, pretty much every show I went to, my clients won their class, etc. So I think we've done that now, <laughs> you know, so luckily I feel like I'm in a position to say, look, this isn't just, because one thing I've heard, you'll have heard this, right? That's great for natural bodybuilders. It's like, says says the individual that has no understanding of how PEDs work, believe me, that's that's the words of somebody that hasn't researched PEDs very well. Um, and it's certainly not the case. You know, I, I would encourage anybody listening to this to be open-minded to that. And that's another thing worth mentioning, actually, if you are a PED user listening to this, what does that change? Um, very little. Just assume that your tolerable volumes or recoverable volumes will be a bit higher. That's it, really. Yeah. In terms of like your your structure and your actual kind of makeup is going to be the same, but you just have these enhancements that are going to, you know, improve recovery and improve hypertrophy, just accelerate things, really. But then the foundations yeah. are still the same. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's just your rates of protein accretion will be higher. So, you know, you may find you can train with a higher frequency you will likely find that you have to do a bit more to get sore or you will be more pumped because your metabolite accumulation is greater, things like this. Um, so everything's obviously in your favor, but the exact same rules apply. Like th these are the mechanisms that lead to skeletal muscle hypertrophy. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's that. So again, it's a point of discovery. If you're a natural athlete and you've discovered, okay, this kind of a frequency with this volume for this body part leads me to overreach and they're kind of moving targets as you get more advanced as well is like on your first cycle quote unquote just expect that to be a bit higher mm. yeah and then in terms of as you said your goal for each mesocycle is to work up to a point of overreaching mm. when you say super compensation like what do you mean by that like what are we trying to achieve by overreaching not overtraining because there is a difference Right, yeah, so th that there is a difference, absolutely. And I'll be careful with what I say here, and I'll also preface this with there isn't great evidence to support this, but I personally believe it based on the small amount of evidence that we have and a ton of anecdote. I've spoken with Jared on this not very long ago, and he absolutely agrees, which again was like, oh, thank God someone else agrees with this. Um, what we're essentially talking about, if I was going to map it into a analogy, would be like if you imagine you're like pulling a bow back, pulling a string back on a bow as you go through this training as a cycle when you're driving greater and greater demands and your adaptation is rate limited. Of course, there's only so much protein accretion you can create, especially when we're stacking new demands on top and you get to the point that the demand ceases. So the demand is gone. It's not escalating anymore, but you have these elevated rates of, protein accretion and all other hypertrophy adaptations, you can imagine your progress is kind of like letting go of the bow, whoosh, and it flies through because your rate of adaptation is now so high. You've just kind of crossed 
where that functional overreaching marker would be because that's where it begins to become unproductive. I think getting there is good. I think spending time there is a waste of time. But you can imagine it like that, essentially. That's a very easy um, analogy to use or something that I've seen time and time again with clients is when they do functionally overreach and deload, you get this whoosh up in adaptation. We deload for that period of time, as long as that takes, seven to 10 days for most people. Yeah, another one is like, yeah, when I need to deload, I'll take like three or four days off. What? No, no. That's not a, a deload. You know, we, we need a full microcycle at least, really. Um, anyway, so the, the point of functional overreaching would be if you're trying to map where it is, would essentially be where the level of demand is greater than your capability of adaptation. And that sounds a bit complicated. So let's say an easy way to track this would be you're adding a set to chest every single week. And that's going well, got a good pump. You get to the point the soreness starts to kind of overlap and performance is hard to hold on to. You're probably quite close to that functional overreaching. And maybe the next week, both of your chest sessions, you actually cannot progress. You not only can't progress, but you regress. So now quite clearly what you did in the session previously, the demand was so large that you haven't adapted yet by the time you've revisited the next time that you're training chest. That would be functional overreaching. Now, if you continue along this line, continue to add volume, continue to regress, you would eventually move into overtraining. Overtraining is a medical term. Bodybuilders barely ever get there. Uh, and it's a real thing. Um, you, you'd, it'd be very hard for you to systemically overtrain. You'd have to really be, you know, the David Goggins type to, to get there. You'd have to be a freak. Um, but functional overreaching is desirable. Something I've sort of had experience with clients is like being really upset when they check in and be like, ah, oh, I regressed on, you know, this, this week and this. I'm like, well, it's the final week of your mesocycle. That's awesome. Cool. <laughs> You know, that's what we're actually looking for. Like, don't be annoyed about it. I've even got clients that I've been coaching for years that still get annoyed by it. I think that's the bodybuilder growth-minded thing. It's like they'd be pissed off that they haven't progressed every single session. I'm like, it's, it's, it's literally the goal. And then when we go through the deload, it's always, ah, oh, yeah, this is awesome. And like, now I understand. Um, so that, that's essentially what I'm looking for there. Yeah, I think it's when you've been told for so long that you, you know, you have to live by the logbook and you need to make sure the numbers are going up every week that when you're not, you kind of like subconsciously think it's a failure and you kind of need to program yourself out of that because that's not a correlation. You know, it's not one doesn't equal the other necessarily. Yeah. And to give some framework on like how close to failure do I take it with clients? Because I think that's like, like when should I train to failure is like, if I'm speaking honestly, I would rather a client never train to actual failure. Um, I think there's a pretty steep inverted U between four and one reps in reserve, especially for my bigger, stronger clients, taking a set to actual failure. And I mean actual failure, you know, on a machine that has a congruent profile, whether execution's perfect, whether they're not introducing inertia or breaking down execution or, you know, or just what you'll often see is people that say, you know, I take all my sets to failure and the last rep still moves relatively quickly. I mean, actual failure, uh, neurally, because of the size and the strength of the individual as compared to their 
nervous system just kind of being the same as it was when they were, you know, 18 or whatever, it is not worth the trade-off. I would much rather have extra volume for that. So between three and one reps in reserve is where most of my clients will train. In fact, a new review from James Krieger came out this week, didn't it, on something looking at this changes in muscle size between individuals taking it to failure and two reps in reserve, um, even with max volume. And the two reps in reserve group had improved outcomes, not on a hugely statistically significant marker, but we're talking about max volume. Are you telling me that those individuals couldn't have done more volume though? Even at the same volume, they, they improved marginally. And if I said to you, you could get the same, if not greater results training two reps and reserves compared to zero for the same number of sets, who wouldn't want to train two reps and reserve? You know, you don't have to kill yourself unless you just really enjoy training to failure, which, which I get, you know, I, I absolutely get. And I've got some clients that emotionally need to have that in there and that's fine. Maybe we'll include that in the final week, but understand there's a trade-off with volume mm. there. You need to look at like the risk to reward ratio. It's like trained to failure. You're going to incur a lot of side effects such as, you know, the injury, the, the potential for injury. And also like what I find is going into sessions with the aim of trained to failure every time. Like I got a lot of like pre-session anxiety, just getting really nervous about needing to match these reps, needing to match this load, needing to train like all out every single time. It's, it's very difficult mentally to, to kind of accept that way of life. Um, whereas when I know that I'm kind of leading up to that in the final week, I'm kind of like mentally preparing myself and then it's only a week and then you kind of go back to your three, two, one kind of profession. Yeah. Um, the, um, the training effort thing to be a really weird outlier in what we do with bodybuilding because there's, there's no other single input that we think is a good idea to turn up to 11 out of 10. Mm-hmm. You know, if I say, right, take every set as far as you can to and beyond failure, you know, would I say, right, eat as much food as you possibly can, mm-hmm. you know, every day until you cannot eat anymore or take as much drugs as you possibly can tolerate, you know, until you can't handle the toxicity or, you know, anything, you know, do as much cardio as you possibly can. Why do, have we chosen this input and just rev the shit out of it? It doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah, it's just strange that this has, for some reason, become an identity. Failure training is an identity that some people hold, which is kind of interesting. Definitely psychology behind it to explore. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, sweet. So this has been, um, this has been really cool to be able to talk training because usually people ask me on to talk peds which i think is it's like the weird thing is like i i definitely have built a name talking about drugs mm-hmm. when um that was never like my research area of like folk what well, it was but everything was you know I, I i'm obsessed with physique development it was never just like right i just love the ped stuff but that seemed to be the most lacking place of understanding so yeah this has been awesome to, to yeah. talk training because, well, physique development is so multifaceted. Like if you just rely on the PEDS alone, you're kind of missing out on all these other variables that you can optimize and maximize. Um, and just because like when I approached you and I'd never kind of tried this new way and obviously like I've made a lot of progressions since I started with you. So it's definitely something that I think other people should look into, explore, just kind of be open-minded and, and not be so dogmatic and obsessed with this training to failure 
um, low volume approach just because people on Instagram do it and it looks good on your feed. Like I know it's much more exciting to see someone trained to all out failure on a squat or a deadlift than watch me do like a chest supported lat pull down with three reps of reserve. Like it's definitely not as exciting. Um, but sometimes you have to think, okay, but what is my goal here? Like, is my goal to get likes on Instagram or is my goal to get the best physique yes. I can? Like <laughs> for me, I know what my answer is. So exactly exactly no that's exactly right and you know i think we need to have an internal look sometimes and question what we're doing for our future outcomes rather than getting the likes today you know 90 percent of my clients competitors what really matters is what we bring to stage mm-hmm. you know and also like what we haven't even touched on is like our longevity in the sport our joint integrity our overall kind of structural like maintenance of our structure and and health and stuff like that and the fact that a lot of us want to be training for as long as possible so if you train all out every single time with no respect for your own body and structure like you're not going to be in this game for very long and yes I know the excuse for everything is oh but Ronnie Coleman did it blah 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 but like look how they ended up like you want I want to be training forever I want to be a really like jacked granny so (laughs) I want to make sure I look after my structure (laughs) we love love this stuff i've got so many clients that have come from that kind of training approach that are broken you know like joe's one of them i keep mentioning joe certainly because people know who he is um there's loads in fact i saw one of the kind of higher ups of of this kind of approach to training post on instagram the other day like got another injury um it was like a back thing um but then X person reminded me how many times I've been injured this year and I can get over this one like the others. So it's all good. And I'm thinking, man, you're looking at that a, a pretty bizarre way. It's like reminded you how many times you've been injured this year. You, instead of going, yeah, that's, that's right. I'll get over this one. You probably should go. Yeah. Why have I been injured so many times this year? <laughs> you know, That's not right. You know, maybe I shouldn't be injured so many times in a single year. Something will have to change. Yeah, like when you see injury as an inevitability, like there's something up there, like something needs to be addressed and troubleshooted. Yeah, and that's not to say that there's no injurious risk of training like this. There's an injurious risk of everything, but it's far, far reduced, far reduced with using progression markers that are less injurious, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, so that was a very good overview of kind of alternative methods of training progression for hypertrophy so i appreciate that is there anything you want to add or anything that we haven't covered no i would just encourage anybody listening that likes the sound of things that we've spoken about on here to check out the physique collective app or at physique collective on instagram we've got loads of stuff on this loads of new stuff come in we're just going for a big remap of the website and the app and stuff like this and you know you can see all of holly's great work on there the ask holly anything thread that's absolutely awesome i think it's nearly busier than mine now <laughs> um, yeah we both, we both have we both have like q a threads where you can ask holly anything or ask joe anything i think our threads are probably the busiest where you can just drop in any questions okay. mine are usually training related uh joe's are kind of everything <laughs> We are the best on there, so we, we are the best. <laughs> expect us to be the busiest, you know. So yeah, we just encourage all you guys to go and check that out. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to find Joe himself, he's Joe underscore Physique Collective on Instagram. And yeah. as you know, I am at Holly Davidge. But 
thank you guys so much for listening if you do listen and you do enjoy it i would love if you took a screenshot and posted it to your story and tagged both of us we would really really appreciate it as joe said please check out the physique collective member site there is so much information there i've started posting my own content videos so we have like purposes of cuffs purposes of banding resistance profiles strength profiles there's you know, a very understandable, comprehensible breakdown of all of these complicated topics to make sure they are applicable and useful for all of you guys. So I implore you to check that out. Uh, but yeah, but Joe, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. And we will speak to you soon. Thank you.